Welcome to the podcast of ideas. What you're about to hear is a recording from the Economy Forum, which took place on Wednesday the 13th of May. This is the third in the series looking at how the coronavirus pandemic has affected the economy across the world. The speaker is James Matthews, who's going to talk about the situation in America. In the chair is Rob Lyons. Hello, welcome to the Economy Forum. I'm Rob Lyons. I'm the convener of the forum and I'll be chairing tonight's discussion. Uh, this is the third in our series of, of looking at specific areas of the world economy and the um, impacts that the COVID-19 epidemic has had on them. Uh, this week we're looking at the US, the biggest economy in the world and whose health has such a big impact on the world economy. Um, after essentially reacting to the epidemic as the Chinese virus, uh, President Trump has now engaged with Congress on unprecedented unprecedented levels of intervention by the US government into the economy. Uh, over the past few weeks, few weeks, we've seen astonishing rises in US unemployment. Um, so this evening is a chance to find out what exactly, exactly has happened in the US economy and what our prospects are for getting out of a depression once the lockdown finishes. Um, so we'll be looking at these questions and many more, I've no doubt, over the next 90 minutes or so. Now, before I introduce our speaker, a quick word from our sponsors. The Academy of Ideas is continuing to work throughout the crisis. None of our staff have been furloughed. In fact, we're working harder than ever, particularly on running meetings like this every evening. Uh, all, our, all our online events during the crisis are free and available to anybody with the means to log on. We'd be really grateful if you could consider giving us a, your financial support. Any donation, large or small, is definitely appreciated. Just go to academyofideas.org.uk forward slash donate if you'd like to give us uh, a bit of cash. Even the price of a pint, a London pint, would be very gratefully received. Um, right, back to uh, tonight's discussion. Our speaker tonight is James Matthews. He's a management consultant in New York State. He's a commentator on the US economy and business and a former economic forecaster. I'm sure he'll be wary of making too many forecasts tonight, but I'm very much looking forward to his analysis of the situation in America right now. James will speak for about 20 minutes and then we'll uh, open up the discussion to the virtual floor for your points and questions. Right, Jamie, you're unmuted. Uh, whenever you're ready, far away. Great, thanks, Rob. Hey, uh, great to be here. Thanks for inviting me to uh, provide an introduction. I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Um, what I'm going to cover in this introduction first, just look at the economic situation, the immediate impact we've seen of the uh, recession. Secondly, look at government responses and uh, some questions around their effectiveness. And third, the uh, prospects uh, for the near future for recovery. And uh, I will say right, right to begin, I'm going to be looking at primarily at the domestic economy. So in the discussion, you want to ask and talk, talk about the broader global economy, that's fine. So, so let's start with the economic repercussions of the virus and the shutdown policy. Um, I think the headline here is that the situation is pretty dire, uh, more dire than, than is uh, typically described. Um, yes, the, it's uneven. Uh, some industries are doing quite well, um, high-tech in particular, reasonably well. Um, but the pain is being felt across many companies, many industries, uh, and, and, and employees are, are being impacted negatively. Rob mentioned the uh, unemployment. That's probably the most stunning 
thing we've seen. It's now uh, most recent month, uh, April went up to nearly 15%. That's the highest since modern records in 1948, and it's reckoned to be the highest since the Great Depression, which reached 25%. Um, the thing is, is that that probably understates it uh, considerably. Um, you, first of all, you've got a number of discouraged workers who, who've been assessed to drop out of the workforce. If you included them, there's a broader measure. The unemployment would be at 23%. It, the figure also ignores uh, those that have been pushed into part-time work. They're still being counted as employed. Uh, there's an estimate that there's like another 11 million who have been pushed into part-time work. Um, and I think what, what struck me and, uh, and some others was just how widespread. I mean, I think everyone anticipated that retail, uh, hospitality, restaurants, things like that would have been impacted badly. But um, all, you know, it was seen across all industries, and also pretty pretty much you could see it across levels of employee as well. A fair number of mid-level, higher-level uh, jobs being taken out. Um, there were were a lot of reports about this being temporary, um, but we've also just seen, especially in the last week or so, a number of companies that originally said that employees would be furloughed are now being uh, permanently laid off or being made redundant. Um, and we've also seen some companies, General Electric Raytheon announce uh, actual layoffs, not, not furloughs, and that was a bit of a, bit of a surprise. Um, General Electric's cutting 20, you know, 25% of its workforce in its jet engine business. Um, and I happen to know just through my own work that a lot of companies are that are now considered healthy that are, are in the midst of planning for, for more furloughs and layoffs um, in the near future. So beyond un, un, you know, unemployment and the job picture, I mean, the, the rest, of the, rest of the situation doesn't look great either. I mean, GDP growth dropped uh, nearly 5% in the first quarter, which is quite something when you think about the fact that there was only two weeks of a shutdown in that first quarter. Uh, the estimates for the second quarter are pretty, pretty bad. I mean, they tend to range from a 25 to 50% decline annually. Um, the uh, uh, Congressional Budget Office forecasts 40%. And, um, and, and the latest uh, estimates for the year also expect a decline for, for the year. And we'll talk about that a little bit in a while. Um, we're seeing uh, capital investment um, is dropping dramatically. Um, the bankruptcies are starting to come through, um, hitting small businesses in particular. Um, there's a study came out which said that, uh, I think it was half of small businesses said they've got six months uh, to go, or uh, if they don't, can't get going in six months, they'll be, they'll be closed permanently. Uh, consumer prices have started to drop. Um, according to one measure, the sharpest drop since 1957. Um, of course, when you see deflation like that, that brings back reminders of the Great Depression. Um, what's been the reaction to consumers? Um, we've seen uh, people struggling to uh, pay their mortgages. Um, and it hasn't really been highlighted that much, but um, because there, the government did bring in some backup, some protection, but those are only for government-backed mortgages. And actually, a, a a very sizable percentage of the market is not government backed. Um, I watched the big short again the other night 
and I, I was uh, unpleasantly surprised to see that so many of the things that 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 they t talked about in the mortgage market are still are still around with us and haven't been rectified. And um, one of that is the fact that you've got with these so-called non-banks making home loans that they then sell off to other investors, and um, we could see a foreclosure crisis. What we're also seeing from consumers is that they've slashed their spending, they're hoarding cash, um, and they're even uh, shrinking their credit card debt. You know, that that was, I thought, a bit of a surprise, just but, but actually, um, there's clear they're, they're hunkering down and trying to get their financial houses in, in order. Um, and, uh, you know, the only uh, and, you know, high level indicator that has been positive has been the stock market, which has been up year, year on year. Um, and it went down yesterday, um, but, but uh, before then it was up um, and, and really has been um, disconnect, <clears throat> disconnected from economic reality. Um, and uh, it's certainly been bolstered by the Federal Reserve and government's actions. Um, but we can also talk a little bit more about that and what might be driving that. So, so that's kind of where things, you know, stand as my high level overview. Um, so I thought maybe now we could look at the uh, government responses and, and some of the implications. I think the headline here is that, that the government has acted aggressively and fairly quickly. And as Rob said, with, with a lot of money uh, as a credible amount of money being pumped in. I think the question is how effective is this in the face of a, what's emerging to be an economic collapse? And um, you know, is it being targeted in the right way? So first let's talk about the Federal Reserve, the, the central bank, like the Bank of England. Um, so they've, um, the Federal Reserve cut its target interest rate to just above zero. So, um, you know, really, really, really bringing that down and announced a, a large, what they call quantitative easing program, uh, similar to the one introduced in the financial crisis in 2007, 2008. Um, and in particular, the Fed has announced a program to buy, uh, you know, up to a trillion dollars in corporate um, credit, including corporate bonds, um, really to support companies in a in a in a direct way uh through the through the through this um this credit and um there you know what we've seen as you know as a result of this is that more credit being extended to companies to to help them through but it comes at a time when companies were already loaded up with a lot of high levels of debt and um, I think we could ask a few questions about this. Um, first, I, I, you wonder if this is, in, in a way, too much, uh, if it's overkill. Um, you know, you could make a case that central banks should be supporting credit markets generally, that they don't just, you know, shut down. Um, but, you know, you, you could also question though, whether it's, it's, it's something else to sort of intervene and buy up bonds of, you know, uh, for specific companies. Um, the, you know, when they do that, you know, just, just because companies have to pay more for, for their, you know, to get to borrow, um, it's really distorting um, 
what should be a market signal, right? Investors are assessing companies and they're demanding a higher rate on the riskier companies. Um, and, and that's what we've seen. I mean, when, when this first happened, companies went, went to the bond market and that, um, and, and that they were finding that it was harder to borrow at, you know, more costly. But the market was differentiating. It was basically saying certain companies are more distressed than others and it's going to cost you more. Um, but now that the Fed has, stopped, has stepped in, it's driven down the, the yields and, um, and, and helped out there. Um, I think as well, you know, what you're seeing is, is that this is uh, preventing, will prevent, at least in the short term, bankruptcies, especially of the largest companies. Um, and we could question whether really that's the right role for the Fed, whether, or whether it should allow the market to play out. Um, you know, it's clear that they're trying to avoid companies going into the bankruptcy courts, but, you know, are they keeping companies that rightly, you know, as some would call zombies, you know, that really should, um, should, you know, necess not necessarily survive and not the most efficient companies. Um, and I think what you can talk about and what some commentators are talking about is a distinction between a liquidity crisis and a solvency crisis. Um, and that the Fed's role and what it can do is to help liquidity, but it really ultimately can't solve a problem of solvency of companies being healthy and continuing. You know, it's one thing for them to put a backstop to the banking financial system as they did in 2008, or to generally improve cash flow for healthy companies or facing a short-term cash crunch. But today we have uh, an issue of solvency, companies not being able to generate sufficient revenues from their business to cover expenses, including the debt. Um, and this will become increasingly apparent as the crisis drags on, as it, you know, unlikely to be just a month or two. Um, the Fed seems to recognize this. They've, they've said that they can't lend to insolvent companies. That's what the chairman, Jerome Powell said. And they've also said it's up to the fiscal, it's now for fiscal, not monetary policy to take over. So, um, and you know, and with that, let's look at let's look at fiscal policy. Let's look at the government. So again, like with the Federal Reserve, the the central government has intervened heavily, up to um, about three billion, uh, sorry, three trillion in total in in various aid and loans for different large companies, small companies, individuals, unemployment. Um, and there's currently in the House a proposal from the House Democrats for another three trillion, um, mostly in payments to individuals. Uh, the Republicans who control the Senate, however, have so far rejected that. There have been problems with inefficiencies in the distribution. Um, the a big news story was that some big publicly traded companies were getting in on the so small business loans. Um, but I think what you're also finding is, is that it's that the, the uh, the prerequisite that companies must spend 75% of their money on employees' salaries. Uh, for, for small companies, this really isn't working um, because they have tend to have modest payrolls and they have, their other costs tend to be higher. So actually right now, even with the second round, a lot of the small companies are not accepting the money. Um, so so that, that's an interesting development. I mean, with all this, what we're finding is that the the federal deficit and the overall debt 
held by the United States is, incre is increasing uh, pretty dramatically. The deficit is projected to be 3.7 trillion by September, and that's with no further spending bill. The debt um, as a percentage of GDP is uh, jumping up from, I think it's 79. It's going up to a, about 100% in September, predicted to go up about 108, 110% next year. Um, which, you know, which is significant. Um, I wouldn't say it's, it's a crisis level though. Um, I think it's manageable, but, but it is definitely significant. And this is, you know, gonna flow through and have knock on effects. Um, we, you know, already the state governments are in trouble. And um, what we're gonna see are definitely cuts in spending at both the federal and the state level. Um, this is significant because th this spending has been helping uh, uh, ec economic activity, um, especially in, the, in some lo locations around the country. Um, and also it's clear that um, tax increases will, will come. You know, the, uh, there'll be a burden on companies and, and individuals for, for some time to come. Um, and, and also, again, there's a question around, is it, is it too much too soon? You know, uh, w you know, when you sort of do this, it means you don't necessarily have the funds later, which, which they could need later. So finally, let's uh, turn third, third and last topic to um, the future prospects. Um, you know, and here my, my headline would be that I think that there's um, an underestimation of how deep um, the decline is and will be, and that uh, there's, uh, even, even though there have been uh, assessments have adjusted, I think they're still too uh, optimistic uh, on the whole. And I think that if you, what's really needed are, are more dramatic steps uh, and which would require though political will and um, there doesn't seem to be that will there. So what do we mean by that? Well, if we talk about, let's first talk about some of the forecasts that we see out there. Um, just to, to pick one, not for any particular reason other than I, it was in the newspaper a day or so, so it's pretty up to date, but Deutsche Bank forecasts uh, GDP to rebound 15% in the third quarter, 6.5% in the fourth quarter. That still leads to an overall decline of 8% for the year. Um, but it does indicate a recovery and it also projects growth in 2021 and 2022. Um, and you also see, you know, th that's been pretty standard. Uh, Congressional Budget Office is you know, mo most forecasts are predicting an, uh, an upturn in uh, the second half. Uh, and that's been often commented around when, when the stock market has been up. It's been said, well, you know, this is, we, we've reached rock bottom now. Um, the, the thing is, though, is that I, I think this is too optimistic. Um, I don't think it factors in uh, the, the un unemployment and job losses to come and the knock-on effects that'll have to the economy. Um, I think this is starting to dawn. Um, the, there was a Wall Street Journal article yesterday which had some interviews with corporate finance executives and they had a much more pessimistic what you might consider realistic assessment I think than the market analysts or economists I've read um, and, and certainly been my experience of, 
talking with companies is is that they they run some different scenarios, but they're planning for for things to be much worse than than what what, what we see in the forecast. Um, and you know, let's talk about a V-shaped recovery. I think is going out the window. Um, now you you know, there's different. It's a U or a Nike swoosh or whatever you want to call it. It's um, it's certainly not um, not immediate and 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 uh, abruptly high again. Um, Reopening is happening in the U.S. economy. I think the question is whether it really will boost the economy in a big, big way. We have 13 states that have largely reopened, uh, 23 that have partially reopened, including uh, New York State recently, and uh, where I am in upstate New York at the Figure Lakes this Friday, we're due to start. Woohoo! Um, but uh, but still, even when um, you do start to open, there are tentative steps, and there's only certain businesses and and even um, you know, even even you know, into it's after like certain phases of recover, uh, reopening, there are going to be social distancing measures. Um, I think it's hard for companies to plan around the unevenness of the reopening. I mean, the whole process has been uneven and 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 somewhat arbitrary, even uh, because it's all led by governors and even in some cases counties. Um, you may have heard about Elon Musk, you know, complaining about California, his, the Bay Area County, um, where his factory, car factory is, is doubling down on the lockdown. And, and I think he's right that there's, you know, it really doesn't make sense economically when you think about that other parts of California are open, his competitors in Detroit are opening. Um, and uh, he, cl he claims he's going to go to, willing to be arrested or, or move the company to Texas or something like that. Um, the, um, you know, and I think you can't, I mean, a lot of people have mentioned this, but you can't just declare op to be open and then find that, um, you know, everything will return to what it was before. People do remain fearful, uh, uh and, and risk averse. I mean, you find that a uh, survey found that 50% of the New York tri-state area, you know, would not, would, would wait a certain number of months, even if restrictions on businesses were lifted. Um, and I, as I mentioned before, a lot of people are hunkering down on spending. They fear fear the worst. Some, you know, lots of, we hear reports of workers saying that they feel it's too dangerous to go back to work. And I think that in particular, the thing that's just, I've just never understood really is why the markets haven't factored in a second wave of the virus coming. Um, it's certainly been talked about. Um, again, just yesterday with Dr. Fauci talking at the Senate and it seemed to hit the markets. But the thing is though, is it's not necessarily that a second wave in itself would be a, you know, an economic problem in theory, but it's clear that already they're talking about a second shutdown lockdown if that starts to emerge. There's no, seems to be no political will to kind of steal the populace, to kind of see through it and keep working through things. And, and I do find that up to now, the forecasts don't seem to have factored in a significant second wave in lockdown. Um, it's clearly not just, a, I mean, political will is a major issue. It's not the only issue. There's issues, um, you know, clearly, like, as I mentioned, unemployment. Um, there are things that, we, we, you know, we haven't seen and could, could be a problem. The energy industry, we already had low oil prices. They're, they're getting hit on um, commercial real estate, hard to see that coming back. 
apparently a significant percentage of bank holdings are tied to commercial real estate. And I think a general point is just the longer this has gone on, it digs a bigger hole and it just becomes harder to emerge from. And there's, you know, other obstacles other than, say, a lack of demand from, you know, spending. Um, I think the most, you know, thing that strikes me the most is about this is, is this uh, latest crisis is just the speed at which it's happened, the disruptiveness, the suddenness of this. It's not gradual. It doesn't give companies time to adjust or go, you know, governments time to adjust. That's what seems to me to be different. And that's what also seems like it would be hardest to potentially overcome, right? When you have supply chains disrupted, it's going to take time to reestablish those. Uh, some suppliers won't be there. It's going to, you know, a lot of companies have complex operations that have been idling. To get them back and going is not necessarily going to be quick. They have to be, especially if they have to be reconfigured for social distancing measures. And even employee relationships, you know, which are arguably more adaptable, are going to be disrupted. Um, and um, I think it's interesting that there's a discussion around, uh, you know, great, you know, could there be a, a depression is being dismissed pretty much. Ben Bernanke, for instance, the other day, you know, said, no, you know, he's, he's not only the Fed chair during 2007, 2008, but he's also written written and books about the Great Depression, seen as an expert on it. He said, well, you know, the expected duration's much less. It's not going to be like this. Um, I mean, I would say, though, but if you get to depression levels of reduction, uh, and especially since this will last more, longer than what's expected, I mean, that's still significant, isn't it? I mean, there's, uh, you know, even if it's not the same. He also said that, the, you know, there's, we won't see a breakdown in the financial system as you did in the Great Depression. That's true. Uh, I do think, though, you know, the banking system will come under strain. It doesn't tend to happen immediately. And also, again, does that really matter? I mean, it's still, uh, 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 you know, a big problem. So even if it doesn't meet the technical definition of, a, of an extended Great Depression, I think we're seeing something that's depression-like and its impact. So what will we see, uh, just to wind up, um, and sorry, Rob, I'm going, going over here, but um, I think I think the process will play out in terms of restructuring. I think we will ultimately see the weaker co companies going under. I think there'll be a lot of mergers and acquisition. I think companies will take the opportunity to do things they've wanted to for a long time and take out costs, especially middle, middle management. I think companies will rethink businesses. There's been a lot written about this. You know, will curbside food pickup continue? More use of t technology, virtual meetings, you know, AI and robotics, will those finally come into play? I think resiliency is the new buzzword. Um, you know, no longer wanting to be resilient on uh, just-in-time supply chains. Um, of course, that's going to add to costs. And uh, reshoring core industries like PPE and life sciences, and, and probably other industries will be defined as strategic. I do think there are limits to how far that can go. There just aren't sources right now that are local and uh, it's not necessarily the wisest decision to make as well. The big, the big, you know, $64,000 question is, will we see anything more transformative in the, um, which might take, you know, uh, more to the medium term than the immediate? I think certainly you 
it's being talked about infrastructure that seems doable, um, but maybe not all that transformative. Uh, there doesn't seem to really be any appetite though for anything that's a big spending program or anything that's designated to try to transform. Um, you know, before the before this, the Green New Deal was one of the things on the table. That's not my ideal, uh, but and I'm not advocating for it. There's as much austerity in that as economic boost, but at least it is something that has a larger impact, but that's not really, even the Democrats are not arguing for that. Um, and really, I, we don't see the political will for any big transformation. Um, standard Republicans are ideologically opposed to government intervention. The more populist wing that's developing, Marco Rubio, Josh Hawley, they send right now are focused more on worker support measures, and so are the Democrats. They just tend to be more about getting getting money into people's hands um, and less about you know really thinking through the economy. So I think the political class has somewhat got its head in the sand. It wants to just get through this in the short term and hoping it will go away. That's it, Rob. Thank you very much. That was a very well structured and very comprehensive. That is brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, I'll put you on mute now so you can relax. And, um, and I'll open it up to the floor. So uh, if you would like to speak, please use that participants button down the bottom uh, and then press on raise hand. There's a little box that pops up there at the bottom of that list of participants. So if you want to speak, please raise hands or if you've got any um, uh, Specific, specific questions you don't really want to speak, you just want to ask a question, you can do that in the chat as well. So um, I've got um, Sally Millard who'd like to speak, followed by Dan Salt. So Sally, the floor is yours. Thank you. Uh, that was really... Uh, Sally, you're very quiet. Can you speak up okay. or get close to the microphone? Thank you very much. That was very insightful, interesting and frightening. Um, I've got a question. Um, about your last point um, on political will. Um, and I think what was interesting to me with the lockdown in, in Britain and everywhere it's taken place is that the will to lock everything down seemed to be there and that seemed to happen extremely quickly. Um, and, it, and I find it um, fascinating and worrying that the will to get things back up again doesn't um, seem to have that. Um, there is no will. Therefore, everything has to happen really, really slowly. And I know even in, where I work, the idea that you want to go back to work rather than sit in your um, study at home is met with um, disagreement, wide disagreement. No one wants to go back to work. And so, and I think that's probably the same everywhere this lockdown has happened. So I'm just wondering how is it possible to change that? Because something has been shown that something can be done if there's will to do it. Um, can we turn that around so that we can have will to go back again? Okay, thank you very much indeed, Sally. Uh, I'll mute you and I'll unmute Dan Salt. Dan. Yeah, my question was, again, to do with political will. In light of the extreme partisan nature of US politics, is there going to be broad agreement on the next steps moving forward? The current stimulus or packages to try and float the economy at the moment have even th those run into a lot of political wrangling. 
And when I hear that people like Laffer is uh, um, advising Trump on what happens next, is there going to be any political will, particularly in an election year, to actually push forward with actual true packages to try and help the people near the bottom or the middle? Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, right. Para. Okay, um, I've got two questions. Uh, could you expand, you kind of threw this comment in saying that resilience is the new buzzword. Uh, perhaps I didn't uh, understand it properly or didn't get it uh, exactly what you meant by that, but it'd be useful for you to explain, uh, uh, given that um, resilience uh, is a loaded word uh, on its own terms. Um, uh, uh, secondly, um, in Britain, you've got the government giving us guidelines, leading, if you like, in some form or shape. You've got the CBI, you've got the TUC, and companies are kind of responding to what they want us, to, what they want them to do. What is the equivalent in America? Because it comes across from the readings. Yes, there's the federal government, there are the states, um, as you point out, 19 states uh, have opened up, 23 partially opened. Um, are companies kind of taking open as the guideline and then devising their own rules? Is there any um, standard response to anything really in terms of what people ought to do? The company I work for, the, uh, its own equivalent in the US, I know have got its own criteria for when they're going to open up properly. And I'm just curious as to see how is business approaching this? Great, thank you very much. Uh, now, I've got a couple of questions on the chat and then I'll bring in Helen Siles. Um, Wendy's asking, and I think a lot of people are thinking this, about the magic money tree, about printing money to get out of this crisis. Um, how limited is the room for manoeuvre on that? And Noah's asking, uh, far from creating opposition to the Green New Deal, groups like Extension, Extension Rebellion, could they use the improved environmental outlook during the corona the crisis to justify their anti-humanist policies after the pandemic ends? So two big questions there. Uh, now, Helen Siles, the floor is yours. Thanks, Rob. Um, I have a question uh, on uh, Jamie's kind of prediction in terms of the depth of recession, which I think is, I, I agree with him. Um, but Jamie, you phrased it a little bit around the idea that, you know, there'll be a second wave of, um, of, of the virus and, you know, the impact that that could have. Whereas, um, you know, I feel, I, I may be wrong on this, I kind of read it a little bit differently, that seeing as so much of the American economy has been based upon kind of consumer confidence, consumer spending, it's very consumer-led in terms of its kind of, uh, you know, apparent dynamism, which obviously isn't as dynamic as that, but it is, a, you know, it is an economy where kind of consumer spending has led things. The, 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 the problem that I see is just much more that, um, there is a, and you've mentioned this, but it's not that there's going to be a second wave. It's that even when the lockdowns end, it's not like people are going to go back to work or they're not going to really do it very much. And I think if you look at all the kind of studies, um, you know, people aren't going to be getting on planes. People aren't going to be um, staying in hotels and all the other things that we've talked about in terms of, you know, um, retail and everything. And so 
it seems to me that the the kind of the crisis in confidence that whether they be consumers or employees has employees don't want to go back to work i mean that's what all the surveys show so it seems to me that that's going to be the most difficult thing to overcome because there is no there's no confidence in um, of people wanting to get back to work at all. Well, not none. I mean, some people are desperate to get back to work if they've got no jobs. But for the people who are kind of sitting at home and working, there's no real impulse to get them out there. And I would have thought that the consumer kind of activity is, is quite important. And the second thing I just wanted to ask is on things like the uh, PPP loans, which obviously are grants, um, if you fulfill the criteria they all run out as far as i can see everything that they've done runs out sort of in the middle of june and i mean it's just hard to imagine what then happens it's almost like that's also going to be another drop-off because once your payroll isn't protected then presumably you can just let people go and so you know by june end of june july we're going to see another wave of unemployment and is there any prospect that the government could just pump more money in? I guess it's the same thing about printing money, because that just seems to be, you know, hopeless. So those are things in terms of the depth of re the recession. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much. Uh, right. So, uh, Joan. You're not unmuted. Sorry, Joan. Uh, thanks. Thanks very much, Jamie. That was really good introduction. Lots of food for thought there. Uh, going beyond, I think, a lot of the commentary that we're seeing, you know, by the economists and, you know, big um, banks and so on. So I thought that was really good. Um, just a comment first about the, um, you know, related to what Helen said as well about the depth of the recession and your point about that these uh, kind of growth rates that are being forecast, the kind of rebound for Q3 and Q4, you reckon that they're too optimistic and they, they may well be, especially, I mean, my assumption is there will be second waves. It's inevitable once you open up second wave, even third wave uh, of this. Um, whether that means there has to be a lockdown is, you know, is, an, is a political question, obviously. Um, but I think even with those growth rates that are being uh, forecast, um, in terms of levels, we're not going to get back, you know, till 2022, 2023, uh, to the level of Q4 in real GDP terms, not back to the level of Q4 2019 for a very long time. And that doesn't even take into account, obviously, growth that has been lost that will never be recovered. Um, during this period so that is pretty dire and I don't think um, people are fully taking account of that and then added to that your point about reasons to be actually even more uh, pessimistic I think you know relates um, most of all you know to um, the question of demand and you know consumer confidence consumer spending and so on uh, and so we're really you know we're talking about um, a lot of jobs that are just going to go. The most stunning statistic that I have seen in relation to the US is that next month, less than half the population of working age in the US is going to be working. Now, in the US, the, uh, you always had a relatively low labor force participation rate. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, you know, compared to Europe, 
um, you know, certainly very, very low. Um, and, and there just seems to be, even before all this, an incredible number of what seems to be mainly middle-aged white men who've fallen out of the labor market. So I just wanted to ask you a little bit about that and what are these people doing? Um, you know, but the point about all this, again, which was the case pre-COVID-19, is the precariousness of the labor market in the US, you know, compared with Europe and other places. Um, and that's gonna become much, much worse um, in the, over the coming months. And I think, you know, what we're seeing now is, you know, is quite extraordinary, but it's gonna become a lot worse over the coming period. So the implications of that really, or, you know, first of all, for the economy, but also, you know, for, for the, political, the political ramifications, I think are also quite serious as well. Okay, great. So I'm going to take um, two more people, Chris Christou and Jacob Reynolds, and then I'm going to give uh, James a, a chance to come back on all this because there's already a lot on the table. So um, Chris Christou. Hi. Hi. Yeah, the, um, I, I suppose well, the truth is none of us really know what's going to happen once we get out of this the other side. And it seems to me that a lot of countries are pulling up the drawbridge and it's about also supply chains and f the price of food going up at the supermarkets and you know someone said that you know not going back to work yes I mean I work from home that's that's also going to have a knock-on effect on you know the way we travel within this country and that's gonna if we're traveling less if there's a demand for less travel and trains there's going to be more people losing their jobs we're also going to we're also moving into this place where we're also clinging and holding on to the money we're not spending now because we're saving for that rainy day that we are being told is going to come in a second or third wave and it's just the levels of unknowing is a lot and there's a lot we've got to look at and it's just you know it's where do we start that's my question. Thank you. There's a lot there. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, that's no problem. That's no problem at all. Thank you. Uh, right. Uh, I'll just take Jacob and then I'll come back to James. So, sorry, I've just. Um, no, that's good. Oh, sorry. Oh. I'm, I'm confusing. No, and uh, thanks. And then thanks, James. And, and you've probably got enough on your plate already uh, with these questions without me adding to it. But um, maybe to just synthesize or emphasize something that I think came out a little bit in. Joan's contribution, which is that, I mean, I'm trying to think about what the difference in the recovery between this will be like versus recovery from the GFC and the, and the Great Recession. And I think the, the way that I, I see it and the consequence I'll get into in a sec is that like you had on paper on lots of indications, a relatively strong post um, Great Recessionary period in the States. And certainly a lot of indicators were a lot better than in the UK and part of that had to do with sort of Trump's like low tax policies, but part of it had to do with, I think the fact that there was an increasing split in the American economy between people who were essentially forced out of work for a long time. And then the rest of the economy, especially the high tech sector becoming increasingly, increasingly productive as a result of it, it's sort of um, use smaller amounts of very 
well remunerated labor and so there, there was a sort of appearance of a dynamism to the u.s economy that masked a huge amount of discontent underneath and so my and my question really is to be slightly old-fashioned is what about labor militancy or the unlaboring militancy already in the response to lockdown things there's been a lot of talk of labor unrest and there's been some of some notable examples of uh, various kinds of union organizing or people demanding that there, there was a GE pl uh, plant wasn't there where they demanded that they be allowed to come in to make ventilators whatever but there's basically my question is if these things continue in this sort of differential US economy split between a very relatively high productivity or high value economy and then um, that's quite dynamic internationally and then the rest of it is, is that just a trend that we can expect to continue and what will as Jones said what will be the sort of political ramifications of that Okay, uh, thanks very much, Jacob. All right, so I'm going to unmute James and uh, apologies to the people who are desperate to get in. Um, so, uh, yes, James, what's your come back on anything? I mean, there's way too much there to respond yeah, to. Right. But. Yeah, great, great points and great questions. And I, um, I apologize in advance, I'm not be able to get all of them. Let me start with um, Helen's, uh, and you make a good point, Helen, and I, I probably went too quickly over this. I think the way I would see it is that um, the, uh, yeah, I, I do think it's pretty clear there, there likely will be a second wave of some kind, but who knows, right? I mean, maybe maybe there wouldn't be, you know, we just don't know, right? But, but um, I guess I would say that I wouldn't necessarily see a contingent uh, of the troubles going forward on whether or not there's a second wave of some kind. I mean, right now, though, I mean, like you listen to Governor Cuomo in New York, I mean, he seems to be like, we're going to watch this really closely. It's almost like if we start to see the numbers going up in any way, we're going to, we're going to tighten the valve again, as he says, right? You know, so it's almost like it doesn't even have to become a epidemic in any big way. It all of us, you know, so that, that's not, that's not, that's not good. But um, I would say though, my, my sense is that and, and you know, I you know, I'm just like anybody, you know, just reading and what would find it, we can find out now. But my sense is that the, all the shoes haven't dropped, and that there's enough that's happening just in these last eight weeks that are still gonna, you know, in terms of unemployment and 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 other impacts on the economy, which are still haven't played out. So I would say that that's already in and of itself is gonna cause problems. And I think uh, you're right about consumer confidence and that that matters, like you said, because it, you know, how dependent the economy has been on consumer spending. And I think generally the, uh, our, our outlook should depend on how did we view the economy coming into this, right? Because that's, and so right now, I mean, a lot of the comments were like, this is, the economy is great, right? We had really low unemployment, lower earners starting to see higher incomes. And, you know, and obviously Trump, uh, you know, saying how great everything is. But, you know, if you looked at some of the underlying things, you know, there's, you know, biggest thing that, you know, Phil will, will tell us is, you know, low productivity. And, um, and that uh, there's also other signs, like in addition to the consumers, you know, the reliance on some state spending, uh, the finance, the growth of the financial sector. There's lots of signs that things are not entirely healthy coming coming into this, and um, and that's what struck me when I read 
about the, what the Federal Reserve said in January when they had their meeting in January before this. They said, there's a slight risk of coronavirus. Okay, that's fine. Nobody really knew exactly what that'd be. But they were basically glowing about how great the economy was, you know, fundamentally. And that seems to me to be, uh, be mistaken. Uh, in terms of your specific point about the um, loans, yeah, most things do, most of the spending does run out in June. And, and the Democrats' proposal now is basically to just repeat everything until to go to January. So there's no, new, like, really not much new thinking there. And it seems like the Republicans, you know, are, are just making a tactical decision to, to delay that maybe that will mean, because, uh, you know, and to, and including to the, to the point that um, someone made, I don't know if it was Sally or, or, or Dan, but uh, I, I do think that they could easily come to an agreement, right? They're, the Republicans are not fundamentally disagreeing. I think they're going to hold out for certain terms and it's, it's more around the timing. Um, in terms of the oh, Paris questions around um, resilience, I think it can mean different things to different people. But I think one of the things you hear from companies is, you know, we, you know, it really we should have been holding more cash. We shouldn't have been um, maybe, you know, uh, had such you know cash buybacks or dividends shouldn't have been as high. We should hold more cash in the future. Uh, but it also you see it in terms of PPE and and drugs, you know, the, the thing everybody says, we, we're all dependent on China, we can't get anything, That's, that shouldn't happen. We didn't have enough ventilators, why didn't we have ventilators? So it, it can come out in this way, and it, it often is kind of leading to a more autarky, you know, where the US would go it alone, and, you know, even maybe regionally go it alone uh, on this. And I do think, Para, in terms of the Structure, I think you're right to be confused. I think it does when you have, uh, you know, this unusual situation where you've got a, a federal government and the state governments and basically like just totally dysfunctional between them. Um, it shouldn't be, it should be possible to have overall coordination and still allow the states to have some ability to make different decisions. And especially in a big country like the US, one of the advantages you would have thought as, as an economy would be that you could have certain parts that are not affected going, you know, full engines going and other parts, you know, slowing down if necessary and then taking over from each other. But there really, it really is a problem, the lack of coordination and companies, my, my experience, power, companies spend a lot of time um, having to try to figure out what the situation is and the rules are. So basically any issue today that I'm finding that companies are having to do, they have to do it 50 times to find out, you know, if they're in, they're maybe not in 50 states, but a lot of companies are in, and they have to find out what are the rules in each state and it's changing all the time. And it just really holds back any uh, uh, recovery there. Um, the last point I'll just touch on at the race by Joan and, and, and Jacob is, you know, is around the, uh, the, you know, some of the politic, maybe political aspects of the, of, you know, of the, of the working class. I do think that a general theme I think we found is, is that companies and individuals have been skating by more than they realize. They've been on thinner ice and they've fallen through the cracks faster than we might have expected. And I think that's what this is highlighted. And that's, 
you know, and I think in terms of the workforce, um, there's definitely been a lot of discussion around, uh, you know, poor poor uh, folks who've been more affected by the the virus uh, uh, in in inner cities, um, the gig workers, you know, who don't have a safety net, all that, which is absolutely true. Um, but it is coming at the expense a little bit, and it's, uh, it's kind of the bias in the media uh, away from middle America is to want to talk about what's happening to the workforce in, in industrial America. And it's like, they're kind of schizophrenic, like one minute they'll sort of say, you know, we got to be sympathetic for the workforce, blah, blah, blah. But then the next minute, it's like, wait a minute, they're wearing MAGA hats. They're big fat guys with guns going into the Michigan state government. Like, we got to stop these people. Um, so it's, uh, uh, I mean, I do think it, it, it should if, find its expression somewhere. I would have thought it, I, it would be wrong, though, like some commentators on the right are saying, you're going to find protests against the shutdown and, and you know, support for people like the Michi Michigan guys with guns. I don't think I haven't seen that, Helen, or maybe someone, I don't know if you've seen that, but I mean, I don't really see too much of that. I think most part, I think it's what I read as well in Britain, you know, that there's a lot of support for, for you know, there's a lot of fear, a lot of support for what's going on for different reasons. Um, so um, I, and I think in terms of the workforce, um, unfortunately, I think most of the protests I've seen have been more around not going into work than around guaranteeing my workplace. Uh, you know, I need a job, get, you know, open this up. I'm willing to take a chance on this. Great, okay, that's brilliant. Now I'm gonna give you a chance to have a bit of a rest because you got through a lot of stuff there. Um, very impressive. So I've got Kerry, Sheila, Daniel, Phil and Evita in that order. So uh, I'll start with Kerry, far away. Uh, hi, everybody. Thank you, Jamie. That was really um, comprehensive, your introduction. I'm sorry to land you with more questions. Um, so the rest might be short-lived. Um, you referred to the stock market disconnect. And obviously, that's what we see on the news every morning, are, you know, the stock market figures. And obviously, there's always been a disconnect, but it just seems huge. And I just wondered if you could help, help me or, or tell us a bit more about that and how we can account for that and more broadly why the idea i don't mean things taking the same form in terms of financial collapse or anything but why the idea of depression has been so dismissed you know given your figures in terms of it likely to reach um 23 or the levels of unemployment in general why there seems to be a weird optimism, which I don't really understand why there isn't. I mean, I'm not saying, you know, we should all be catastrophists, but it does seem really, it does seem really um, a bit bizarre. And finally, I just wondered how much the economy is really going to screw Trump's chances now. I know we've talked about this in other meetings but how much you think this is, um, given he was riding high on the economy, is how much are people really taking that on board? Great, thank you very much, Kerry. Um, Sheila. Hello. 
So more, more questions, I guess. Thank you so much. It's really interesting. I'm, I'm struck tonight and the other night at the similarities between the US and the UK. Um, so to just repeat what you said before I ask my main question, um, again, in the UK, I do feel that we're not yet impacted. It's only two months into the most amazing situation that's happened so, so very quickly. But the idea of extensive hardship, um, non-virus ill health in terms of our health services, lack of attention to other illnesses and diseases now is something that bothers me, and the absence of education. So those three areas have not impacted at all yet, um, in my mind. Um, and we do have in the UK many, many people protected from the immediate um, concerns and maybe you know maybe rightly so you know we've got seven million people furloughed and all of that that goes with it and then these trends of the unions demanding no work and demanding not to go back to work but coming up with no solutions about the actual economy um, seems similar um, somebody referenced the idea that food is going to be really expensive but again just at the current moment um, food is incredibly cheap you know uh, there's um, an Irish beef mountain isn't there you know I've got a ribeye steak for £2.50 at Asda. Um, so what I'm really perplexed about is we need, we need this huge bounce back. So those who spend their time thinking about what can we do, what's needed, where's the leadership, there, there is a huge bounce back that could happen. It is conceivable that that could happen. Um, so why where it, we know that there isn't the political will in the political structures we're looking at, but there must be something somewhere that is the political will that would be risk averse, even if we disagreed with them, even if they were reckless and wanted to spend, 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 and started telling people that they needed to all get back into work and take the risk kind of the political will around those ideas seem to be absent across the entire globe. So where does, where's that political will actually gone? Where are the reckless people? Okay, where are the reckless people indeed? Um, one of the things that uh, I noticed, talking about food, just uh, uh, that there was a really big debate in America, which I haven't seen in this country, about meatpacking and how the meat packers wanted to close down and uh, Trump has kind of intervened to say, no, you can't, you can't have any of that nonsense. I, I, I don't know if Jamie wants to comment on that at the end or not. Um, right, we've got uh, Daniel, then Phil, then Evita. So, Daniel. Okay, well, maybe to try and answer one question, although Jamie may have a different take on it than me, and uh, to make one point. So, in relation to the disconnect between the stock market and the real economy, although it does appear very strange on the surface, I don't think it's that strange when you look at it. I think you can see at least two reasons why the stock market might have bounced back. I mean, it did fall very dramatically and then it's come back up again. Uh, partly because the Federal Reserve, the American Central Bank, has pumped so much money, even compared to the crisis in 2007-8. It has pumped such huge amounts of money into the economy that's helped to buoy up the stock market. But also, if you look at it, it's particular companies that have done well. It's many of the big tech companies, the so-called FANG companies like Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, uh, that have done very well, and many other companies haven't done well. 
I'd also say that far too much attention is attached to the stock market. I mean, you can see why, particularly in America, you have all these small investors investing in, in stocks, but it's the bond markets. And Jamie in his talk referred to corporate debt, uh, so bonds, that is much bigger and much more important to look at if you're really trying to understand what's happening in relation to the economy. Uh, my point is in relation to language, really, because I think that just as I think it's true, and others have made this point, that we need to develop a new language in relation to politics, I think you can make a parallel point in relation to economics. So I think resilience is going to be very, very big in this. So it's, it's true, as I think Paris said, that the term resilience is used to mean lots of different things in different contexts, some positive, some negative. But it seems to me the way it's being used now mostly is that you have resilience on the one hand and efficiency on the other hand. And the idea, as Jamie alluded to, is that you're, you're, we've, we've played, we put too much emphasis on efficiency. In other words, if China can, can produce uh, certain commodities most efficiently, then let China do the whole thing. Uh, and not much on resilience, in other words, letting production be diversified across the world. So I think there's going to probably going to be a very big discussion on the importance of resilience. And that, as I think Jamie alluded to, will link to the whole trend towards autarky. In other words, less emphasis on international trade. I mean, that won't go away completely, but less emphasis on trade. And more emphasis on countries and regions being self-sufficient. And finally, in relation to language, I think we should stop talking about stimulus because normally what, what economic stimulus is taken to mean is that companies have got into trouble, there's a lack of demand, therefore, in order to pick up demand, you stimulate the economy by pumping money into the economy. I mean, there may be problems with that strategy, but that's the way it's normally understood. But these are not really stimulus packages because the economy has very deliberately been put into deep freeze. It's very different from a normal kind of crisis. Uh, and what these really are, you could call them support packages, shoring up packages, rescue packages, but they're not really stimulus packages because that doesn't really get to grips with the, the very peculiar kind of crisis that we're going through at the moment. Yes, very much so. It's, it, I mean, it is the difference between a treatment and a ventilator, really. It's uh, keeping somebody alive rather than and in a coma rather than actually trying to get them better. Um, I did want to just throw in a question of my own really, which is about, just to try and introduce some note of optimism, was about, Jamie mentioned the zombie companies and how many companies were uh, just struggling by, and to what extent, and it would be in the long term, there would be any sort of, if you like, useful, progressive clearing out of those companies and, and whether that in the long run there might be some some benefits to this downturn and actually as it happens Phil Mullins up next and he's written about this quite a lot so I'll, <laughs> but I won't but say whatever you wanted to say anyway Phil. Thanks uh, yeah I'll sidestep that question for a moment but um, I wanted to say something about resilience but um, in a different way than the way Daniel's discussed. I think Daniel's very right to, to make the point that most times when people talk about resilience today, I think it's, it is linked to the, uh, the, some of the questions about political will, because when people talk about the need for resilience, it's an expression of the sense of fear and vulnerability that people have, whether it's in geopolitics or in terms of you know, people's capacity to live a life 
or whether it's the economy. When people say we've got to bolster resilience, it's 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 usually a sign, you know, we're 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 in a pretty uh, a pretty horrid state or pretty torrid state rather, uh, uh, and it's a sign of their uh, anxieties. But I wanted to use resilience in a sort of the old-fashioned way in answering Wendy um, and the point about what are the limits to um, Fed's monetizing of debt, uh, the MMT, modern monetary theory, magic monetary and all that sort of stuff. And this is a very strong difference of America to, you know, the rest of the discussions we've been having on other advanced economies and how they've been coping with or not coping with the pandemic, because uh, there are very <clears throat> there are very much fewer limits on the Fed and it, and what it's been doing in terms of monetizing debt, which is effectively what it's doing at the moment. Uh, it's it's you know openly and for a long time been buying treasury bonds, which basically means that it is uh, doing that proverbial printing of money in order to finance uh, government spending. That that's what it's been doing, and it's gone beyond that as Jamie so well described, moving into buying corporate bonds and buying junk bonds and, and basically just pumping so much liquidity uh, in, into the system. Now, the reason it can do that and why there are a few limits on that is because of the, uh, the, the old dollar as world money. I mean, for 40 years, people have been predicting the demise of the dollar as world money, that it would, you know, that it couldn't survive, that it wouldn't remain the dominant currency in, in, in uh, uh, exchange, in, in um, currency reserves held by other, other countries, uh, that its role as a world money would be challenged. First, it was going to be challenged by the yen, then it was going to be challenged by the euro, which didn't last very well. Then it was going to be challenged now in the last four or five years, people have been talking about being challenged by the, the Chinese yen. Um, and despite all this, it has stood, the dollar has stood rock solid as the dominant reserve currency. I think it's been in that sort of 30%, uh, sorry, not 30, 70, 75% range, you know, as long as I can remember. And that's because in a way of the network effects or partly because of the network effects that everyone still remains dominantly reliant on the dollar. Dollar still is traded. And that means that the those fears a few years ago about the Chinese selling off all their treasury bonds was a bit inflated, uh, you know, these things could, could happen for arbitrary reasons. But generally, Asia is very dependent on, on exchanging dollars. So that it's not in their interest and they rely on dollar funds in their own uh, assets as does China. So this gives a tremendous, this acceptability of the dollar everywhere in the world, both gives the Fed a responsibility to try and make sure that things don't freeze up internationally, which is what it did on whatever it was, 13th of March and piled and say, we will provide swap lines to everyone in the world who needs them. So we're, we're going to make sure the dollar does not freeze as an international currency, which was then in parallel with this huge amount of liquidity uh, at home. So, you know, you can look at the trillions and trillions of dollars that the, the, the Fed is spending, but really uh, there isn't any limit to that. And therefore there's no real limit to the American government being able to print more bonds because the, the, the Fed will just buy them. I mean, it does expose this mirage of the Fed being an independent you know, bank, just as all the banks claim to be independent. I mean, the, the, the relations between the Treasury and the Fed over the last six weeks have been have been extremely close, uh, uh, you know, exposing that exposing that lie. So that's a, a sign of the resilience of America, which none of the other advanced mature economies has. And we should always bear that in mind when we move on to my second point, which is about 
uh, the state of the depression, which is more of a question, Rob, if I can. Uh, and how, how perceptions, Jamie, are, uh, you know, might be changing. I have another way of looking at the prospects for America, which is not so much looking at what's coming down the line, you know, to what extent would there be a second wave, to what extent would there be a second lockdown, to what extent would be, you know, the messy relations between different states doing things at different times and the whole, as you said, the whole arbitrary, confused character of the, uh, of, of, the une of, the, of the easing process, which obviously creates a lot of, as people have said, uncertainty. There's the question of the caution and consumers not buying things and all that. There is all that stuff and it's all important to look at, but it's really secondary to what I think the pandemic has, has exposed, which is more that America was already in that very dire strait, as you said. And that, uh, I mean, I think, Jamie, you're sympathetic to that perspective, but it does seem such at odds with everybody else's view that the American economy was doing well, as a, as a couple of other people, Jacob and other people have, have, have alluded to, you know, much better than Europe was doing, which had its Eurozone crisis, much of it Britain was doing, because everyone knew there was a lot of crap jobs being created and the whole uh, job creation thing was a bit of a, uh, you know, was a bit superficial. And, you know, we had big discussions about inequality and gig economy and all that sort of stuff. But this idea that the American economy was doing well over the last 10 years wasn't just a a figment of, uh, of Trump's campaigning, it did seem to be well embraced, as you say, even Powell was saying, you know, it was a strong economy going into, going into this. Now, to me, what the pandemic has done is exposed a lot of that as, or could expose a lot of that as being untrue. I mean, we have, just to conclude, uh, Rob, we have, you know, as you said, not just 15 to 20% unemployment, but all the job creation of the last 12 years just went away in a poof in you know four weeks right so that in fact i think the levels of employment now in america are the same as they were at the end of the last century you know so so all that's just gone which which could be then interpreted as saying well it actually shows how superficial and artificial and flimsy a lot of that heralded and stated job creation was so my question to conclude is to say to what extent is there any change and shift can you can even identify in the perception of things weren't so great <laughs> when, uh, as everyone led us to believe, which clearly has a bearing then on things like Kerry's question about, you know, what, what does it mean for Trump for election? But is there any beginnings of a, of a, of a flicker of uh, questioning just that the economy was already in this very bad state and all this pandemic done has just brought to the surface um, the, that very undynamic uh, nature and the very flimsy nature of the, of the last decade? Right, very good. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, right now, this is <laughs> this has been a really really good discussion, and look, people are making loads and loads of really good points. However, we're starting to run out of time, so I would really ask people to start keep their uh, get to the point, as it were, and keep to the point, and uh, make their points uh, reasonably brief from now on. I'm sorry if that cramps your style. So, uh, Avita, you're next. Evening and sorry everyone uh, about the mismatch between the name and the image, but I've stolen my wife's iPad for this evening, so uh, it's actually Zolf, Zolf Janati. So good evening. Um, my question actually, Phil covered some of it uh, already. Now, I'll keep it very brief, but we talk about the U.S. economy, internal economy, etc. But what about the big external factors and risks? And I was thinking there about, for example, the China, the currencies that are pegged against the dollar the big dollar holdings that you know sovereign funds have, Saudi Arabia, China, et cetera, and possible situations they could be forced into because of US, both economic, internal economic and political situations. So for example, upcoming election, you know, 
China being a potential uh, sort of um, uh, pl uh, not player, but uh, um, a pawn in the, the US politics, etc. And China either reactively or proactively reacting to the situation within America, thereby leading to some of these bigger risks coming into play, for example, potential, you know, large non-US players um, looking at their relationship with the dollar, making changes that then impacts the dollar itself and, you know, potential risks around that. Is that realistic or is it a case of, you know, we're just so all tied into this sort of economic guaranteed mutual destruction that no one will even dare go there and it will just carry on as it is. Um, so that's my question, really. Brilliant. Thank you very External much. External risk factors. Thank you. <laughs> right. Okay. Thank you. Uh, so, David Axe. Um, Jamie, great introduction. A couple of quick uh, questions. Um, so both the uh, US and the UK are kind of relatively dependent upon services. Uh, and the thing that strikes me about services is that uh, they can't be stockpiled uh, to be sold at a later date in the kind of fire sale conditions. Uh, you know, that income has, that income has gone. Uh, and it's gone for good. Um, so is that a uh, is that a factor that we should be uh, taking into account? You know, in terms of you know another kind of similarity. Should we a uh, kind of s second question relates to do we need to reappraise uh, you know kind of Keynesian idea of effective demand, uh, given that quite a few of the contributors have stated, and I think they're probably right to say that there's a real reluctance to get back to work. So even when we are out of lockdown, it'll be a real struggle to get people back on the trains and back into the offices uh, and get the economy uh, moving again. And it, and it seems to be a, the, uh, kind of a demand or a lack of demand uh, as a consequence of that. It might be a real, you know, a real factor, even though it's obviously a subjective uh, decision on, 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 people's, on, on the part of the uh, uh, people uh, of employees. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, uh, I just before I bring Jenny Cunningham and then James Woodhouse, I've just been a bit remiss on the chat. So uh, Vanessa has asked about uh, discussion of different econ economic theories or models and about the discussion on public infrastructure and public works to maintain economic activity. Um, and also uh, Mermaid Rachel uh, has asked, um, well, brings us back to a, an earlier discussion in this series and Phil Mullen said that uh, the UK had been covertly in recession effectively for decades. Uh, is that true of the US as well? Uh, how else to explain the extremely rapid collapse of so many companies? Um, and Noah has asked about um, the effect of, of this on a trade deal between the US and the UK as well, which has obviously uh, been a a major factor in the, the sort of the Brexit discussion as well. So thank you for all those. Uh, Jenny Cunningham. Hi, Is, you can hear me. Um, I think Phil probably went a long way towards answering this, but I, I did want to ask uh, two small points. One about the servicing of American debt, you know, which previously was an international affair to some extent, and to what extent that is still the case, China and previously Japan. The other thing is, I wanted to ask a bit more about this word that's been thrown around, autarky, 
or you know old-fashioned protectionism and and it seems that trump in particular has made if nothing else a rhetorical um a point about america first but to what extent will the present COVID crisis and the the economic crisis in america become an actuality in terms of protectionism and what impact could that have on the world economy thanks thank you very much right i'm afraid i'm going to have to put this discussion on lockdown so only the people who've got their hands up already i'm afraid are, are going to have a chance to speak so sorry about that so uh next up is uh james woodhausen i hope thank you <coughs> um are you able can i share a screen for a second rob i'm not sure if you can but give it a go okay uh you've disabled it but maybe you're going uh, uh let me just uh, change something there right um have a good, another go now how's that look no no. Look, there's a, uh, well, it's a small point on Joan. I think one of the key discussions here, and there's a bit of a parallel with Britain, is the labour force participation, the desire to want to go back to work and all of that. And I don't disagree with what Joan said about that. I just want to um, sh show, if I can, the BLS figures on it, um, labour statistics, because um, they are... Uh, you know, not as enormous as one might imagine. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the extent to which people are, were not going to work uh, and now they are a bit enormous in terms of declining. So I don't know if you can see, this is all a bit gonzo. Can you see that chart? Yes, we can, yeah. Yeah, well, that's the Bureau for Labour Statistics. It's true, no doubt, Joan is right, that participation rates, if you go back to 2000, that's 67% of the total workforce, lower than Europe, and there is a decline, very widely commented on, but in fact, if you look at the decline over 20 years until just now, it's from 67 to about 63. So that's 4%, maybe 5% over 20 years. Serious, but not catastrophic. Internationally, you know, quite, quite uh, unparalleled, then you've got the big drop at the moment. So the question is really, you know, not to overdo it, as I think some commentators have, about just how much the participation rate has declined. We need to get that right uh, if we're to understand the, the unwillingness to go back to work now. The only point I was going to make, Rob, very briefly again, is that uh, I've just been mugging up on the New Deal because I think we've got... We've all got a lot to learn. I certainly found I had a lot to learn about the New Deal. And the caricature is lots of FDR spending, sorted everything out, Tennessee Valley Authority, Works Progress Administration, all great, you know, what's not to like? Uh, and um, in fact, the real story is very different. I can circulate an article in the Atlantic, very balanced on this, just how important uh, sort of private sector and government, not, it wasn't state spending just like that. They used the private sector, especially in housing, in electrification of rural areas, and in defense, very importantly. So it's, we need to brush up on this to contrast it with the last big outing for quote unquote state spending to attack the Green New Deal, which I am surprised by. I think Jamie's right about this. AOC and other people not really going 
very big on the Green New Deal today. And again, if you can, uh, just to conclude, the, if you can see this, um, great, some great stats. I don't know if you can see them, but you know, what did Roosevelt achieve? If you look at all the numbers, GNP, employment, construction output, you name it. You know, what he broadly did was get by 1939, America back to the level of 1929. So, you know, what a great new deal the last time around. And the Green New Deal put forward today in somewhere like Britain or in America, not nearly as ambitious as Roosevelt was, which didn't do that much. Right, brilliant. That's an interesting historical rejoinder there. Um, thanks very much, James. Uh, Dominic. Hi, Jamie. I've been interested in your thoughts on the relationship between the whole rhetoric of a US first kind of national-led responses to the crisis and the fact that obviously the US is still the world hegemon, and as Phil explained, very fundamental to the world's economy. So to what extent can uh, the US pursue more national solutions or to what extent is it still being ignored in an international direction? I think one illustration of this is travel. And I don't want to contradict Helen because she's made many great points. Someone showed me a picture today of a US aeroplane full, every seat, uh, people with masks on actually complaining about lack of social distancing. You know, obviously travel is very fundamental to the US economy, not just for tourism, but for uh, international business as well. Uh, is there a possibility that there will be some kind of uh, national opening up of travel uh, to the world or will there be different state solutions? I noticed today it was interesting that the EU said that individual member states could pursue their own national solutions to travel and Germany announced that uh, it would be opening all its borders with some restrictions from Saturday. So I'm just wondering in the US context to what extent there is potential for national uh, solutions still be included in an international direction, or are there even maybe uh, different state responses? Great, okay, thanks very much, Dominic. Um, Dennis, uh, you're on, you're up. Oh, hello, and hello, Jamie, great, uh, great introduction. Um, I thought Warren Buffett made an interesting, used an interesting metaphor, um, showing some recognition of what might happen in America when he said that, when the tide goes out, we see who's swimming naked. But um, on a slightly different issue, it seems to me that you know Trump uh, has a kind of three-pronged strategy, if you like, uh, for dealing with it. All the things that Jamie have out outlined in relation to business and banking and so forth and liquidity problems, and you know paying workers, I think six hundred dollars until July is what he's doing. That's his first strategy, combined with. Uh, pushing the states to open up as quickly as possible to get the economy working again, which has caused lots of friction. But that seems to be a second element of his strategy. And the third element, which is something we haven't really commented on at all. It, well, we have because, um, you know, there's the issue of, of blaming China, which I think is quite interesting. I just noticed as a, as a, as a kind of side issue, uh, uh, there was the release of a dossier of intelligence information in Australia to the Australian press um, called Five Eyes, 
which is uh, intelligence information from Britain and US and Australia and Canada and New Zealand. All the intelligence agencies from those countries backing up Trump saying there is kind of significant evidence, although not published, irrefutable evidence, some of them are saying, that China was behind, you know, the laboratories in Wuhan or whatever were behind the release of the virus. I'm just wondering to what extent, you know, that third kind of point has any significance to, you know, America's kind of uh, capacity to sort of, you know, to, to use that as an issue, which might have bigger ramifications as well. I mean, I don't know how long China will will sort of stand by and be sort of heavily insulted by all of this. I saw another article where Chinese embassies around the world have told their people to go out in really hard against the American kind of approach. And I'm just wondering that subjective element, does it have any meaning in all of this? Okay, thanks very much, Dennis. Right, last but not least, uh, it's Johnny Morris, and then I'll bring James back in to attempt to sum up uh, all of those different things. So, Johnny. Hello there, I hope you can all hear me. Uh, I'll be brief. Um, do we think that the, the sort of Trumpite approach to opening up the economy, uh, finishing the lockdowns, is economically the correct one? This is a virus that kills the old and the unfit, which are the non-active, you know, not economically active people. So we leave behind the, the, your workforce, which, uh, so why, from an economic point of view, wouldn't it be better to go for a V-shaped uh, depression open it up, kill off all the un economically uh, uh, unactive and let all the active people get back to work. That point was that as question. dark as your image there, <laughs> Johnny. I Thank you. Listen, mate, I can't work out how to turn the camera on. I'm a technologist <laughs> as well. It's embarrassing. Right, thank you, uh, Johnny. Um, right. Uh, the floor is yours now, Jamie. I wouldn't even attempt to to tackle all the different points, maybe pick two or three out to uh, to, to tackle. Uh, so over to you, Jamie. Yeah, so right, there are a lot, it's hard to know where to begin, um, but um, what I would say is I, uh, I obviously agree with Phil on the uh, discussion around the dollar and the uh, how the some of the limits that might for other exist for other countries don't necessarily apply at least in you know the medium term and um, I think that's true um, I don't think and I don't think Phil was saying this either but I, I don't think that it necessarily then means that whatever the Fed's doing now is either going to be effective or it couldn't even have adverse effects um, and, uh, you know, one of the things it relates to the point about the stock market that, you know, a couple folks mentioned and agree with Daniel. Um, I think, you know, to Kerry's point in the beginning, you know, a lot of the times what you hear in the news or you read is like the market's up and it's like in reaction to something that happened yesterday. And, you know, it's in the, in, in the U.S. recently, it's all been around oh, well, there's confidence there's going to be a recovery and it's a forward-looking indicator. Or they'll say the Fed, you know, as Daniel mentioned, the Fed's backed everything up. They, they don't see any problems there. I think what's missed often is the, is the sort of over time look. And in particular, what tends to happen, you know, to really simplify it is when there aren't other productive ways to invest, you tend to see 
the, the stock market go up relative to the, to the economy generally. It tends to move in line with the economy, but that kind of froth to it tends to be, you know, indicative. And I think that's what we, one of the, I think what we are starting to see. And I think one of the things that when the Fed, in particular, there's a mechanism by which the Fed has been buying up bonds. And, uh, you know, one factor, it's not the only factor, but one factor, technical factor, is that today a lot of the market is based on these broad-based, what's called mutual funds in the U U.S. I, uh, I forget what the UK term is, the equivalent. But basically, these are meant to be balanced portfolios. So companies, uh, so these, co what, what happens is when the bonds, there's more investment in bonds, you need to invest in stocks, in equity to balance those off. So there's an, another like unintended consequence of the Fed is, gonna, is, is to push the stock market up, which then holds out the possibility of, of a crash at some point. You know, uh, not predicting one or something, but just that's that's possible. Especially if you look at um, the way in which, like leading up to two thousand seven, two thousand eight, and some others, where the investment in stocks is coming through um, through through debt when you're borrowing to buy stocks. That actually is much more vulnerable to a to a crash. Um, in terms of the question around to Bill's question around the are we seeing any changed perceptions? Great, you know, great question, because that's something to, you know, you'd want to identify and see. Um, first of all, I would say that probably it's the case that this thoroughly ingrained, you know, rosy outlook prior to this is why, one of the reasons why people holding, were holding so long to like a V-shaped recovery scenario, because they just couldn't imagine that this could have the impact this latest recession could have the impact it could have. Uh, and it's just starting to come through. Uh, I think the only place that I've seen, I've not seen a whole, you know, a, a more thorough questioning of this, but where I have seen it is there are more commentators now that are talking about things like, we've got to let bankruptcies flow through. We've got to let this happen. And, and they're saying there are companies that have existed that really didn't deserve to exist, that they've been just getting by. And this is, a good enough occasion for this should happen. There should be consolidation. Um, and that's the closest I've seen it is that kind of recognition that, oh yeah, we've got a bunch of companies out there that, you know, that haven't, aren't all that healthy. I think in terms of the economy, um, I think, and, and the health through to politics I, and, and the more popular perceptions, I mean, everything did seem to indicate before this that, um, People generally did think the economy was doing well and that that was helping, helping Trump's prospects. Um, I do think if there's any questioning now, it's more likely it's coming from people, your ordinary people today. And they were, you know, basically saying like, my life's been upended. You know, like I had certain plans for my, whether it's my business or my, you know, my job. And I don't know what I'm going to do now. Like, uh, I, I, there's been a, I just noticed today, huge drop in um, applications for college, you know, financial aid. Basically, all these people's life plans have been put on hold. They thought they'd send their kids to university and they're not going now, you know. So I think that that will eventually, you know, um, filter through. Um, last Couple points. One is uh, Great Depression. Absolutely right, James. We should look at it. Uh, 
the new, in my view, on the whole, the New Deal was more political. It gave a sense of activity and it had, it definitely secured things. It didn't have as much of an impact economically, but there was something of a recovery by the mid thirties. And then by the mid to late thirties, there was another big drop. And, and we knew not till the second world war were they able to sort, sort things out, but definitely let's compare and contrast. Um, the nationalism issue, I think definitely uh, that's on the cards, Dominic. Um, that's all the discussion is, is around that. Um, I, and I, I would say also there is, I think you were referring to states as in this, you know, the separate 50 states. And there, and I, you know, there's definitely been a discussion around that as well within states, you know, that, that, you know, and it's kind of weird to see like, you know, this coordination of these like former colonies in the Northeast deciding to sort of team up together. Um, and, and sort of like they're talking about having, you know, that continuing. It's very, you know, autarky, we normally think of internationally, it's happening within the US too, which is kind of unusual. I do think though that there are limits to that. Not only is it like economically, you know, inefficient and, and problematic and can't happen, but also the, if you think about what, uh, actually I think it was James and Austin were talking about the last highlighting that the US as a percentage of the internet, you know, it's international exposure. So it already is very much a domestic oriented economy. So the idea of like withdrawing somewhat from the international economy, I think is not gonna solve its problems in a, in a, in a, in a big fundamental way. Um, I do think Dennis that um, you were asking about China. Um, again, we don't really have time or the place to discuss this. All I would say is, is that I do think that there's quite a lot of consensus in the country. First among the political elite, they both like to blame China. Um, and then secondly, there's, a, um, I think, you know, popular view is not like, they're not, they don't hate Chinese, but they, but there is a view that we're too dependent on the, the China, Chinese economy. So there is some resonance to, it resonates somewhat when the politicians start going on about China. And so I think that is an area to watch, but that's a very big dangerous game and it goes, Back to the point, Phil, and I, I think was it Zolpi? I'm not was I'm not sure if I caught your name correct correctly, but um, you know, good points. I do think that that's a it's a, it is a political issue. I think that's no one in the short term is going to want to touch touch that issue. And the last point I'd say, Warren Buffett, um, his one of his famous phrases is "Don't bet against America." So as pessimistic as I've been today. Uh, uh, I would. I don't want to come across as if there's no chances for restructuring. That there's no chance. That there are definitely dynamic sectors. Um, I think I've only emphasized the dark side because it's just not. No, you know, there's so few people that have acknowledging that so far. Okay, I'm going to unmute everybody. I want everybody to give uh, James a really big hand, round of applause. Hey. Hey. Okay, mate. Thank you. Hello, Jamie. Uh, <laughs> right, I'm, I'm sorry to mute everybody again, uh, but I'm just going to make one or two quick announcements. Um, so, uh, so yes, thank you very much, Jamie. That's the end of this sort of first, this big blast of economy forums that we've done on looking at different sections of the world economy. Um, we have a small break now, uh, and then we'll be back sort of on the 1st of June 
we're going to be talking about geopolitics is actually an academy of ideas discussion in association with the academy forum um about geopolitics and where that's going uh and that'll be on the monday the first of june um and the next sort of regular economy forum is on the 10th of june and we'll, we'll switch to looking at different sectors rather than geographical sectors and we're going to be looking at the oil industry because we've seen some astonishing drops in oil prices over the, uh, the past few weeks. So looking at what's been going on there as well. If you can't get enough of me chairing, then next Thursday, we've, one of the big discussions of the pandemic is about the role of experts. So we're having a discussion on democracy versus technocracy. Um, I uh, have just pasted into the chat, although there's been lots of great comments that have uh, covered it up now. I'll do it again, but haha, uh, which is, um, uh, the link to the donate page. I, I would love to buy uh, uh, Jamie a pint. I can't. So if you would like to buy the Academy of Ideas a pint, please do. Uh, and uh, that's everything for now. So it, please, uh, if you want to hang around and chat for a bit, on the, uh, I'll leave the meeting open for a little while. Uh, but thanks again to uh, James and what a fantastic discussion it's been. Good night. If you'd like to attend future salons, forums or debates, head to academyofideas.org.uk and check out our upcoming events. And if you enjoyed that discussion, how about giving us a donation? All our online events during lockdown are free, so we're counting on your generosity to keep us going. Thanks again, and stay tuned for more from the Academy of Ideas.